I've got a border collie, so she's pretty clever, <laughs> yeah. and so she she's got probably about twenty words or so <laughs> yeah. that she she will reckon You can ask for toys by name, and she'll bring the right toy and yeah, so that's on. Cool. But I had a border collie growing up as well. They're really smart dogs. Yeah, and you can say whole sentences uh, to it, and the head goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They look like they're understanding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think they're just they're pretending mostly. <laughs> I can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. It is. Yeah. Well spotted. I mean, that's that's sort of more the normal way up. Um, so. So is that like a neuron? Those are brain? what they call them, um, brainbow mice, where they take um, fluorescent protein yeah. of, um, I think it's, uh, um, I think it's some. Um, squid or un, like underwater animal and they gene splice it into mice and they then have them randomly expressed at different colors in their brain in their neurons and then this is a slice showing the neurons and because of the different colors you can trace where their axons go and their connections go so at the top is is cortex um, and then we've got hippocampus and dente gyrus um, of of the, really the mass, cool. and you see the regular structure, particularly in hippocampus, of the or, uh, arrangements of the neurons. That is so beautiful. I've never seen that. Yeah, so it's a beautiful picture. Yeah, huh? yeah. yeah. Well, so we do. Really, we do really like of, that picture. We do a lot of fluorescence microscopy for our PhD, and we've been doing it for masses. So soon, yeah, yeah, yeah. So as soon as I saw it, I'm like, wow, that's yeah, that's legit, really cool. And and can they tell the different types of neurons based on the fluorescence or? I don't know where they're at with that. I, I suspect you can genetically mark them to target specific cells and bind to the specific cells that get expressed there. Mm. Um, but I don't really know how they... Uh, here they, they yeah. seem to have labeled everything. Yeah. I guess if you label them by cell type, you might get clumps as well, and it might be harder to see as clearly as that image. Yeah, although you get the cell types distributed throughout the brain, like similar cells are <laughs> spread out through through large areas, so they don't, they're not all in the same spot. So. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's yeah. cool. Um, okay, 
So how about we start with Andre, just a bit brief introduction of who you are and what your current position is at Western Sydney University. Okay, um, I'm Andre von Schaik. I'm the, a professor at Western Sydney Uni. I lead the Biomedical Engineering and Neuromorphic Systems program, which is part of the Marx Institute. It's one of the pillars of the Marx Institute. How long have you been here at Western Sydney University? I moved here in 2011, so it's seven, seven years, years already, and okay. that seems short. Yeah, time flies, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> How do you like it so far? It's a bit of a change. It's great. I mean, I moved here from uh, University of Sydney, so the change wasn't uh, massive. Um, but I, I really like it here. Um, I have, feel like I'm, I have much more support here and much more freedom to do what I want to, to do and do interdisciplinary research here than I had at the University of Sydney. Yeah, that's interesting. That's actually a little bit um, like our degrees because we've just recently started PhDs and we're kind of looking at different PhD projects and, and where to go and we're lucky enough to both get scholarships. But um, a bit of a toss up there, like do I do something that kind of I've designed personally that I'm really interested in or do I go to another university where I might have better chance of getting a scholarship but I really have to do a set kind of PhD project that's already kind of worked out and yeah and uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's yes yeah you get a bit more freedom and, and, and a bit more more chance here and it's it, it doesn't have the name as much Western Sydney as the University of Sydney but at the same time I'm, I'm not sure that it, it matters that much yeah. ultimately it matters what you do, the research you do, the outcomes you have, the people you work with yeah. as well, um, the network you build up during your PhD, the network the people like your supervisors have mm -hmm. nationally and internationally. Yeah. That's far more important than just the university yeah. you end up going to. Yeah. Okay, um, I saw in your bio that you started off with, um, was it electrical engineering and then you moved on to physiology. Correct. Yeah. So could we get a like an idea of of your journey, where you started, where your mind was, and and how you've progressed through your journey from from wherever you started, I suppose. So I started um, when I was still at uni um, as an undergrad. Um, in I did that in Holland, and at the time that was a master's program. So from undergrad you went all the way through to masters. And sort of for third year project and then master's project, I was interested in neural networks. Mm. Um, they were uh, a big thing in, in the 60s and then it sort of died out when they discovered that they couldn't do everything they wanted to. Then there was some progress in the 80s and um, it became big again. And I started working in that. What was the early, like, what were they excited about in, in the field? What were they hoping to get? I think it was more the, the, the like, in the, in the 60s, it was hard to build neural networks on computers. There, there just weren't many computers that you could build these things on and, and make, make them run and do interesting things. In the 80s, you could build much bigger networks and put them on computers, and there was some progress in the learning rules on how, how do you make neural networks learn. And that went well in, in the 80s, but then towards the end of the 80s, there was a, a, a book published showing the limitations of it, and it, the balloon deflated a little bit, which was, I, I finished my undergrad in 1990, so I got interested in the late 80s, and then I just, just, it was just as the balloon was deflating oh, yeah. in this area. So my 
degree was in electrical engineering and I was interested in electronics and how to build electronics for neural networks at, at that time. And that then segued basically into being interested in building electronics that's based on neural systems, on the brain um, and your neural senses, that sort of processing more, more generally. I can kind of see... Um I guess an academic progression from electrical engineering into neural networks. But I guess, like as an undergrad doing electrical engineering, what, what was that catalyst that kind of got made you interested in neural networks? Was there research you were interested in or was it something else? Like, for instance, we've had other people on who said that they, they read books or they watched... Um, TV shows. TV shows and things like that. And it's, it's interesting where people's impetus can come from, I think, sometimes. It can actually come from very diverse fields. And I was just wondering if it was that or maybe even a particular lecturer or something. I think it was the last one, yeah. yeah. A particular lecturer that talked about that topic in an interesting way that just catches you. Yeah. And, um, you know, here, here I am, uh, what are we now, 37 years later or It's so. amazing how those, like, little things sometimes, just like getting a, the right lecturer who just catches you on a particular topic can totally change your, your life yeah, yeah. trajectory. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So, so you got into your honours, you were saying, as the balloon was deflating. Yeah, so <laughs> in, in, the, in the sort of computer neural networks side, and... But at the same time, in sort of the 86 or so, um, they started this area called neuromorphic engineering. This was a professor, Carver Meat at uh, Caltech. Mm. Um, he got inspired by some of the similarities between transistors and the ion channels in neurons and similarities in that they move charged particles in one case it's electrons in the other case it's it's charged ions um, there are energy barriers involved in both in, in the movement and that became a motivation for him to, to set up a lab and then in um, I think 88 or so he published a, a book um, on that which I have um, here um, analog VLSI and neural systems and that was a motivator for starting to look at um, that talks about implementing models of the eye, of the ear, um, of neurons. So then it's not just learning networks, but it's also the sensors and so on. And that caught my fancy. So I ended up doing that. Mm. Yeah. Th that's what I found really interesting because both Hamid and I are um, cell biologists. So, so we're quite well acquainted with bioengineering. Um, yeah. and, and that's kind of... Uh, for people to know, because we haven't really talked about what bioelectronics is, and maybe we can go to that next. But um, uh, that's what I found the difference when I was researching it is bioengineering, we're kind of like looking at biology or using biology to create products that we need, so proteins and things like this, and a whole, whole, whole host of products. Mm -hmm. um, but bioelectronics is a little bit different. Yeah. M maybe you could explain. Well, I mean, bioelectronics, I've really used it when I moved here as, as a catchphrase for, for catching two things that, that I do, because it's not really um, a well-known term, as, yeah. you, as you point out. I only heard it last week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> on our way so, here, yeah. <laughs> so I, ca I use it because some of the electronics that I work on um, is inspired by biology, but a neural... Uh, pro processing that we do mm. 
And then the other work we do in, in, in the lab as well is, is biomedical electronics. So where we go in the other direction, we take electronics and apply it to biology. So we have this nice synergy in, in both directions. And to catch that in one word, mm. I sort of yeah. picked bioelectronics as, as a way That's to good. catch so, that. So you've got electronical items coming into the body. So I guess that would be things like pacemakers. And in or like on, right? We, yeah. we mainly work on wearable stuff here. Yeah, so okay, it's external yeah. stuff that you, you put um outside um like a, a, a t-shirt that you could wear or an ankle cool. cuff uh, measurements like that we have work on um bionic voice generation for people that had their larynx removed after a cancer awesome. um and again that would be an external device or a device that you can put into in your mouth yeah. rather than something that is implanted because we had uh, last year, um, we had Meow Ludo on, who is yeah. the biohacker who put the Opal card chip into his hand. Yeah. Um, so he's right into transhumanism and things like that as well. And and uh, I guess less wearable somewhat. But yeah, yeah. yeah. But a similar yeah. similar type of field. But then, how, may, oh, sorry, go on. How do you go with topping up that Opal card? Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, you just hold it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah he does so it. Okay. I think you can do it electronically as well yeah. online. Oh, yes, yeah. True. He's, he was actually, on a side note, he's actually involved in, I think, a legal dispute with them now the transit authority because uh he he got caught and he said yeah my card's here but i don't want you to scan it because then they'll have his details and they'll like cancel the card yeah so he's like i've got a valid ticket and i can show you on my phone on the app that i have money and stuff um but they still gave him a fine so he, i think he's took taking them to court okay like, yeah, I'm, right. I'm not sure he doesn't that. want to give his details he like doesn't that. want to give his details because yeah. they've said they're going to cancel the card that operation becomes redundant yeah, 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 yeah. that's right yeah um but perhaps we should talk i think you're correct me if i'm wrong a little bit more involved now in in the in the opposite direction and that's looking at biological systems and seeing how we can use the way that biological systems work to create electronic devices is, is that fair or yeah so let me go to wind back a, a few yeah. steps yeah, yeah. back to how i i got here because that's yeah. how we yes. how we started talking so after I finished uni and got interested in that book, which termed uh, or coined the term neuromorphic engineering, taking inspiration from neural systems and, and applied that to electrical engineering, I applied for a number of jobs. I got a job in Switzerland um, in a group headed by um, Eric, a guy called Eric Vito, who was a professor in Switzerland and a guru in microelectronics, integrated circuit design, and particularly for low-power systems. His um, biggest claim to fame is that he's the inventor of the electronic watch. Um, and in Switzerland, watches in Switzerland, yeah. nobody in Switzerland believes people would want electronic watches. You want the nice Swiss expensive timepieces that cost oh, a thousand right. bucks at yeah. least, right? <laughs> and so then Japan took it up and it nearly killed the Swiss watchmaking <laughs> industry. Yeah. They've recovered pretty well. I, I, I haven't followed this now, but when I was working there in the, in the 90s, I know the Swiss watchmaking industry was selling only 10% of the world watches, wow. yeah. but making 90% of the money in the field. Oh, wow. yeah. um, I don't know how they're doing now, probably even better, you know, because yeah. all the good watches uh, you see. Uh, yeah, uh, different market. <laughs> totally different yeah. market, yeah. So I started working there and um, started looking at models to, to make basically chips that um, 
behave a bit like the eye, specifically for observing things like movement and motion. And um, when I was there about a year and a half in or so, Logitech, you know, Logitech, the computer, mice, maker, cameras, and so on, they came to that um, company and said, can you design an optical mouse for us or an optical trackball? Um, because we have problems with the uh, trackballs that we have. Oh, the old school that was the, that you see is back the old school spheres in the, the laptop. A lot of people listening to this have probably never seen one of those. There's, millennials, there's millennials <laughs> don't know what dial-up internet is. Mice used to have a little ball in them and then you move them around and the ball would move and touch Just sensors. before the trackpad, yeah. yeah, there were two options. It was either uh, laptops that had hadn't been around for that long. They had a tiny little ball um, um, at the front of the keyboard and a few buttons next to it. Or they had what IBM have, those little green joystick in the middle of your keyboard. Those things are a pain. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Nobody liked those, I think. Especially if you want to play video games. (laughs) Terrible. But the the old... Um, computer mouse too. It had a ball in it and then two wheels that touched the ball and they would rotate um, as the ball rotates but the wheel would have to um, rotate as the ball rotates that way but slip as the ro- as the ball rotates at 90 degree angle oh, right yeah. because you don't you're not moving on that axis right, you're getting yeah. the X and Y movement okay and that then it picks up dirt and grease and then the, the the properties of the ball change so every few weeks or so you have to take the ball out scrape all the gunk off the ball right. put the ball back in and, and do that and with a trackball where you have it upside down in your keypad it was even worse you know coke chips all the <laughs> usual pizza all the stuff would, would get in it yeah um, and so people hated those things. So um, Logitech said, can we do it optically and do it in such a way that we can uh, detect the movement? We put a p- random pattern on the ball and then there's nothing touching. And then if the pattern is random, if the ball gets a little bit dirty, there's still a random pattern on it. Yeah. And so I invented a, a chip and an algorithm for that that went into Logitech trackballs in the um, 1994 it came on the market and they might still be sold but at least a few years ago they were still in shop so it was a um, long-running approach and technology that that was used in these Logitech marble trackballs they 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 called them Um, and that was really the first product in neuromorphic engineering where we took inspiration from uh, how fly eyes detect motion and apply that to the chip and apply that in a product and put it on the market. I have one um, of the trackballs from back then over in the, in the lab. We can take a picture of it later. Yeah, could, could you maybe quickly explain the, the, the similarities the between the fly eye and the trackball optics? Yeah, so the, in a fly eye you have omatidia, which are separate lenses along a large part of, of the eye. So it's basically broken down in pixels, like in, mm. on a camera. Mm. And in the fly eye, the motion detection looks for edges where light-dark changes are, or dark light changes. And then at neighboring pixels, with a slight delay, it compares. So if you have a change from light to dark here, and then at a neighboring pixel, you get it a little bit later there at the right delay, you're saying, I've moved in that direction. Ah, 
Okay. And each pixel does that independently, but then globally, if you're interested in, in global motion past the eye, you can average that and get yeah. a result out that tells you this much motion in this direction, this much motion in that direction. So on the chip, we do the same thing. We have these photo detectors on the chip that detect light-dark changes, and they correlate it with neighboring pixels with a slight delay. In, on the chip, there's a clock, so it's just one clock cycle delay. So if it's here now and there at the next clock, then it's moved in that direction, and this pixel will say, I vote it's gone in that yeah. direction. And it only compares, say, right and up, mm. because the down, it's the pixel that below it will compare with it already. Okay. And so and then each pixel votes, and you tally up the votes, and you get a, a, a global answer about it moved in this direction by that much. And that, that's pretty much what's to, what's to it. It's amazing. Yeah. That is so cool. Um, what I love about this stuff is, um, is it kind of, uh, when you first hear it, and it's, it's amazing, and it, and it kind of really is, that, um, that we can look at biology and design these systems that work really well. But then when you think about it more, it's a little bit no surprise, because biological systems and you know, systems we've designed both designed for the same universe to live in the same universe and so There's going to they be have to operate under the same universal laws and also they have to solve these problems and usually biology has already solved it and so you can take inspiration from it that's that's a main motivator yeah, yeah. evolution has had a long time to solve the, these problems and it's yeah. particularly for tasks that biology is good at and they're always like we're good at things that are important to our survival um, mm, yeah. and f those tasks computers current computers are not necessarily always good at right. um, like um, you know localizing sounds or listening to sounds in an in a noisy environment understanding speech right. for us in an in a noisy environment we're pretty good at it mm. um, Siri is not so good in a noisy environment right. to to understand your your speech if it's clean and clear by now they uh, computers got pretty good at that but yeah. Yeah. the downside of biology is that um, there are no engineering plans there are no design plans <laughs> that you can look at on how it was done so yeah. you, you have to figure it out and in engineering we like even in computer design right you you design the computational block you design the memory um, within the computation you have um, registers, you have the communication, uh, and you break it down in blocks, and each block can operate independently, and you can connect them together, and they still do um, their tasks as you designed them to. In biology, like in the brain, it's very hard to break it down and to say, this does this independently of that, and that does that, and that does that. We, we tend to do that mm. about the brain, but there is, like, there are more feedback connections like from higher in the hierarchy to lower in the hierarchy, say if you take hierarchy from your senses to whatever you, you do, do define as the top, yeah. there are more connections that feed back from higher in the hierarchy than that come in from your senses. Right. Mm. And this is like the <coughs> Gurkha effect, I think. I think that's what it is, where if you're watching someone pronounce like ba and va, um, and based on what you hear, well, that's a top-down control. So if you hear ba um, and you, the, the lips are saying va, you still see the lips as being ba. So it's like, it's, it's not serial, it's not like one unidirectional, as you're saying. Yeah, that's, a, that's a called the McGurk effect. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, I forgot exactly which syllables they use, but they ex exactly they use pa and va and yeah. ba, and and what you see and what you hear they influence each other, um, basically. If you look at that, that's one of the things that fascinates me about uh, the brain. The connections that come from your sensory system into cortex, which is the outer layer of your brain, which is it's also called neocortex, because it's the newest part of the brain, and it's where we believe thought happens. It, it's, it's the highest part in, in the hierarchy of the brain, and then in cortex there are hierarchies as well. Only about 4% of the connections there come from the sensory system. So most of the brain's connections are from other parts of the brain. And the way I interpret it is that the brain is just making it all up. Because yeah. uh, we know that happens a little bit, don't we? Like we know that um, like our blind spot in our eye, for instance. Yeah, yeah gets, we don't notice it. We, but it, Yeah, it, we don't see the blind spot, totally but it's there. there. Our yeah. brain just kind of fills in the gap. Yeah. 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 And, and also the, um, you know, the, the fovea where you see sharp is about the size of your thumbnail yeah, at yeah. arm's length. Yeah. Um, we don't, um, if we think about it, we realize, yeah, that that's out of focus, but we don't have the idea that that whole world disappears. Yeah. We're actually living by only seeing a, what, a ten-cent piece at arm's length and the we, whole time. <laughs> and we have far less color vision to the sides, too. That's mainly the, the rods that do the black and white vision that, that mm. you get on this. We, we don't have that sense. The brain just fills in all those details and then occasionally checks... I guess, with reality to see <laughs> that it's still okay um, and that everything is going all right. In fact, I think the main role of the brain is, is predicting what's going to happen next, like yeah. immediately next, not far future. Right. And then just checking that their predictions are still valid. Right. And that, if just you can do that... keep you alive. Yeah, if yeah. you can do that, <laughs> if you can predict what's going to happen next, you're always a little step faster than yeah. if you react to what's coming in. Right. And that's going to be important. Yeah. And, and so the hyperconnectivity, or the, the, the connection between one region of the brain to the next region of the brain, and, and the connection between all these different parts of the brain kind of give it that ability to predict? Yes, <laughs> I think. But how or, or why, I don't know. Um, it, it's one of the areas I'm, I'm, I'm researching in and I'm, I'm very interested in is how does that prediction work? Mm. Um, if you do um, what they call psychophysical experiments on humans where you ask them to do a task and you measure things like reaction time or how often they get it right, how often they get it wrong, and you manipulate then the, um, the stimuli, the input that, that, that you give for the task either vision or audio, you get performance that follows a statistical optimality um, and called uh, Bayes optimality or, or Bayes law is, is, a, is all about predicting based on prior information, stuff that you've learned about the environment and taking input from probably noisy sensing of your environment, combining those to make the best prediction of what the current state is. Mm. And that's a mathematical formulation about probabilities and statistics. Mm. But if you test humans and animals in, in their performance, it, it, it follows that quite well. Now that gives us an indication that something like that is what happens in brains. 
how that is done, it's one thing to write the mathematical formula on paper or simulate them on a computer. Right. It's a total different way. How do you do that with spiking neurons and hyperconnectivity right. and, you know. And that probably underpins or something I was going to mention before. That, that probably, um, uh, forgetting the lack of a better word, underpins uh, the importance of basic research. I was thinking with the fly, like if we didn't know how flies' eyes worked, it would be hard to base sensors off them, optical Absolutely. sensors. So, so uh, governments and universities, I think, funding basic research is really important then because then we build all these types of things like optical sensors and better computing systems off our basic knowledge. Yeah. And, and who did ever, ever thought that when we we're trying to find out how a fly's eye works that it would lead to a better computer mouse later? Yeah, yeah so exactly. You, you, yeah, can't, yeah, yeah. you can't predict that type of technolo technological development from such basic research, yeah. but the basic research is really important. And exactly. Mm. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. And a, a nice full circle on that is that I then got contacted by um, a, a research laboratory in Germany where they'd studied the fly's eye and the fly's motion. <laughs> cool. And they were then looking at beetles and beetle movement and they had the beetles walking on a ball in the lab and they wanted to observe the motion of the ball and they were asking if they could use the chip that was in the trackball to look at the ball to study the beetle yeah the yeah. basic research nice. again and it's a lovely lovely yeah. full circle I was, on that. I was watching a TED talk where there were they would um, this guy was trying to design robots um, that could overcome just small obstacles because I think that's one of the issues when you're building ro robots, they have to be able to overcome, let's say, um, pieces of rock or whatever. And they found that cockroaches, just the way they are built, um, uh, uh, can do that very efficiently. Um, so this again kind of just fits in with what you're saying and uh, what Alex was saying about basic research informing, you know, uh, robot design in this case. Yeah, uh, I've, like I've done another project modeling quite a while ago now, modeling how uh, crickets localize sound because we, you know, we all hear crickets, right? And they have this high-pitched, uh, quite yeah. piercing sound. But like cicadas, they're impossible to actually hear where exactly it's coming right. from, right? Yeah. Um, but they still have to find mates, and they're using the yeah. calls for mates. So how how they do that? And in in crickets, they actually have um, like ear canals in their legs, going through the, to get because their their head is so small that if you just try and localize the differences between two ears on either side of the head, there's no difference. Yeah. It would be impossible to do. So they have ear canals built into their... To increase that distance between the... Yeah, that's really cool. That's interesting. Yeah. So, and I don't know what we use that for, but again, it's, it's bi biology has come up with very interesting solution to, uh, to something, right? Yeah. yeah. Eventually, yeah. We'll, we'll find, I'm sure somebody will find a use for that. Yeah. Um, uh, cricket, yeah. Um, so tell us what you did next. So you, you, you worked on the beetle and then what was the next step for you? So I worked, no, well, I didn't do the work on the beetle, but um, so I worked on the, the, the trackball in the company, um, did a couple of other um, projects, and then I decided I wanted to do my PhD. Um, and the guy I worked for, Eric Vito, he was also a professor at the university uh, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne. And I decided to do my PhD with him um, at that institute. Mm -hmm. And we started looking at 
audio instead of vision. And the, originally, the idea was for speech recognition. Automatic speech recognition didn't work that well in the in the early 90s yet. And again, one of the ideas was to see, can we take inspiration from biology? Because biology solves the, the problem quite well, um, at least humans. My dog is not great at speech <laughs> recognition. Um, Except the walk. Well, she's, <laughs> I've got a border collie, so she's pretty clever. Yeah. And so she, she's got probably about 20 words or so yeah. that she, she will reckon. You can ask for toys by name and she'll bring the right toy and yeah, so that's on. Cool. But I had a border collie growing up as well. They're really smart dogs. Yeah, and you can say whole sentences uh, to it and the head goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah they look like they're understanding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think they're just pretending mostly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they look like I understand. So. So I started work on audio and modeling um, the hearing system, the, starting with the cochlea, which is the bit in your ear, in your inner ear, the, the coiled structure that filters the sound, and then up the auditory nerve, and then in the brainstem there are some uh, groups of cells that process the sound. And I did integrated circuit design to model those things and, and for my PhD to try and build engineering solutions that work like biology in, in that system. But it was quite difficult to find the right information about biology. If you, a, a lot of measurements in neurophysiology were like on a single cell uh, for mm. particular stimuli. And as an engineer, when I was designing this, I said, no, I want to know this characteristic or this transfer function. If I were doing that experiment, I would use a different input or I would do the experiment differently and so on. I need other information to break it down. And so once I finished my PhD, I ended up in physiology saying, well, I'll do these experiments myself because I'm not getting the right information. Mm -hmm. So it's your engineering background that informed you, or, or th th I'm sure that's informed you it, it, with your physiology. Uh, well, it kind of it highlights the I think in highlights the importance of multidisciplinary approaches to things and and diversity. If you diversify your interests, um, not necessarily even just in academia, but the more diverse your interests are, you bring more I think to the table when looking at different ideas. You can look at something. In yeah, a different it, perspective. It, it, it's fantastic to um, to do things across disciplines and and, and try and, and bring that in and. Uh, great thing about being an academic researcher is you, you can start in microelectronics and end up in, in physiology and, and, and do something there. Mm. Although I must say it was um, not quite an epic fail, but it was uh, a strong realization that, gee, physiology is hard, that's why they make it so, <laughs> why, why the experiments don't tell me what I, I need to know. It was that mm. they're very difficult to... Um, to do those types of experiments. So yeah. in, including even, so we then quickly ended up doing more on psychophysics, human sound localization, um, trying to understand how it is we, we localize sound. Um, and even there, it's, it, it's harder than electronics in the sense that once you have designed your electronic chip and you're measuring it, you come back the next day, it'll behave the same mm, yeah. pr pretty much all the time. Um, humans, you get them back the next day, they don't behave the same. And there's, <laughs> there's all these problems with reliability and repeatability and, mm. and so on. So, so that made it hard. So. Yeah, that's interesting. 
Okay, we, we're almost about to hit 40 minutes. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, um, so you're building all these analogs and you mentioned a few examples, um, but in regards to the brain, what is the advantage of having a brain analog? Or like building circuits that are based on brain uh, connectivity? So the two, there's two parts to, to that answer. One is as an engineer, if I can build it, I understand it, sort of a, a driving motto of that. So it helps you to try and build a model of something you're trying to understand. Mm. You can try and simulate it mm. on a computer. Um, sometimes those simulations become way too slow for you to be useful. Um, I don't know if you, if you have it in, in your research, but I have it had it throughout my research. If you can turn a knob and watch something change, then you quickly get a feel for what that knob does and, and, and how to control it. If you turn the knob and you have to wait 10 minutes for the simulation to finish and then see how it changes and then turn it again, you totally lose that intuition about how things are, are connected. Mm. And so you want stuff to respond in real time basically to what you're doing or close to to real time so you can get that sense of of how it's going so that's a a reason why often you have to go to electronics rather than computer simulations because they get too slow the other side of it is of course if we understand it and we we find solutions that um, biology has found like the fly's eyes motion detection Mm. you want to be able to apply it and do things with it mm. and for that again you'll end up building these models and doing it in ele- electronics so mm. even if sometimes I, sometimes we do know where we want to use something sometimes we don't but we still build the model in case we end up using it mm. for somewhere um i want to yeah i want to ask a question about ai because i think that's the the natural question to ask so in terms of like neuromorphic engineering and building intelligent systems like how do you see this field contributing to the development of artificial intelligence? That's a really hard one, I think, at the, at, at the moment. So that there are clear overlaps, um, particularly recently. So this field of neuromorphic engineering, as I said, started in the late 80s. Um, when I did my PhD in it, there were three labs worldwide doing this. And all our professors have retired now, and now we're the leaders in in, in the field internationally. Over the last decade, it's exploded. And Mm. companies like IBM have had a big neuromorphic engineering group, and Qualcomm, and Samsung. um, Mm. And lots of people are um, moving into this field, partly looking at artificial intelligence as well and deep learning um, which is such a hot topic at the moment um, which is basically the, the second revival of neural networks in the in in the last decade where they've learned how to make these neural networks much deeper and larger which is where the term deep learning comes from and systems like AlphaGo that recently beat um, the world's best yeah. go player yeah. Um, they're built using that type of architecture and, th- and that type of uh, approach. So it's not just the algorithms, but it's, it's the actual f- 
physical structure of the network that leads to deep learning. Yes, it's, it's in the physical structure of, of that network. And at the moment, a lot of that gets simulated on, on GPUs. Um, what are GPUs? Um, graphical processing units. Okay. Um, so they were um, originally developed for your computer for video gaming and those types of high demand graphics applications. Mm. And they're really good at multiplying one matrix by another matrix or by, by a vector. Those are the type of operations that they are optimized for. And those are exactly the same operation or those are exactly the operations you need in those deep learning algorithms as well in those architectures so they run them on those devices mm -hmm. um and so, play so go for instance right? right just just a question in terms of so these architectures what can what do they like what is the computational difference between that and just a normal computer like how why does that enable deep learning versus just a like a PC so there's a few differences so one of the main differences is that on on your PC all operations are done sequentially one after the other mm. and you do one addition one multiplication and then the next and, and then the next the GPU takes that a step further in that you, it has these parallel units where, where you can do it but it's still moving information into a bit that processes it then moves it out into memory moves the next bit of information in does an operation on it moves it out again and all this moving back and forth of information takes up a lot of the energy and a lot of the time mm. in the neural networks you basically stream the information through from beginning to end all in parallel you have these nodes that they term neurons and they're connected by connections that have weights associated with them. And you take the output of a neuron multiplied by the weight of its connection and that will sum into the input of the, the next neuron. And those operations mean that you have the learning, which is all done in adapting those weights of the connections that you have. You have the learning in the fabric of your computation. As you compute, all the weights are there and you're multiplying it through. Yeah. That's what I was, sorry, that's what I was going to ask you is like, like how does electricity learn? So I, I guess you're saying that um, uh, these neurons uh, preference particular connections and the weight of those preferences changes as they learn or as their exactly. inputs change. Yeah. yeah. So does weights learn? And, and you can do that... Um, there are different variants of it. You can do it unsupervised, where it just learns from the data and tries and captures the statistics of the data. There are learning rules to do that. Um, commonly for a, a lot of tasks, like um, they use deep learning very well. Like if you go to YouTube and, and, and search for particular objects in videos, like cats in videos is a typical mm, yeah. example, <laughs> right? It'll be deep learning neural networks that are very good at extracting those cats from, uh, from videos and, and recognizing them. Those have been trained with this is a cat, this is not a cat, which is called supervised learning, where you have to have a whole set of data that's labeled. Yeah. And that's part of the reason I think that now deep learning is, is working and in the 90s it wasn't. We didn't have um, the cloud yet. There wasn't, there wasn't so much data around it and so much labeled data that you could train these networks on. Um, so they do that now. 
And so in biology too, it's, it's the same thing. Your neurons connect to other neurons. There's synapses at those connections. Those synapses have particular weights. That's where we think learning and memory formation happens in, in the brain. So that's the analog. In the brain, it really is in the fabric of computation. As the signals run through the brain, these weights are applied, and um, then you get actions ultimately as an end result or yeah. a perception that, that, that you have. I've experienced that before with um, things like music. So uh, when I first I played guitar, when I first started learning guitar, where am I? I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't get my ring finger to move backwards and forwards, right? Like yeah. I've got it on the fingerboard and I'm like, I want to lift it up and it's just not happening at all. Yeah. And now I'm like, I can do whatever I want with it. Yeah, yeah. And because and that's, I've, I've developed that connection. Exactly. And, and that's like an really ad adaptability, right? Yeah. But even just memories of what, what you did yesterday, those are formed by changing those, those strengths of connections in, in your brain. Mm. Are, they, are these deep network architectures, are they also plastic? Do they do they change according to the to, to the uh, what they expose to, just like the brain is? So yes and no. In that, typically they they change their weights, but they don't change their architecture. So the number of neurons and the number of connections and where those connections go typically stays fixed. It's not universally true. I mean, generally in science, there'll always be exceptions to to certain rules so but typically you design an architecture and that stays and all you change is the strength of those those connections so in the brain it as i said it, it really is in the connections themselves if you simulate this on a computer you still end up storing the strength of these connections in computer memory and then the processor has to go fetch it from computer memory, apply the weights, store the results in memory and it's still doing this back and forth um, between memory and the central processing unit. And that has become a real limitation for, for electronics, for technology. And you might have noticed that um, for the last decade or so, computer processing speeds, like the clock speed on your computer, hasn't gotten any faster. You just get more cores now on, on, on your laptop. Um, previously, um, if your computer was half a year old, then the next computer was faster and faster and faster. And that came through the fact that we could cram more and more transistors in smaller and smaller technology on a chip that's called Moore's Law. Where a uh, number of transistors doubled every 18 months, that's at an end now. We're we're finishing that. We might get one more generation where they get smaller. We've already had for a couple of years that the price per transistor has gone up, whereas previously it always went down yeah. if you calculated the price per transistor. And so computers were getting faster because we could cram more and more into the same chip footprint, and that's running out and um, so to advance technology one of the hopes so it's not the, not the only one is to take inspiration of this more uh, of this biological computing and doing it more with weights in in the fabric of the computation that needs the new hardware that needs new electronics and that's another reason for us for building these models mm. to try and come up with architectures because if we just take it the model from biology and simulate it on standard computers is going to be slower rather yeah. than faster. We're actually also going to have to adapt the hardware to make it faster. Right. 
Okay, we're almost hitting 50 minutes now. Um, where do you see this field going uh, in 50 years? Because I know it's, it's neuromorphic engineering has changed since the time you've you started and bioelectronics has changed. In 50 years, what do you think we've, we would have accomplished? By we, I mean you. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to take credit. Um, well, in 50 years, I'll be retired. <laughs> Just the ge general uh, field, I suppose. <laughs> I, I honestly don't think I can that's a long way off, that. isn't that's, it? Uh, that's yeah. a, so, um, Do you think we would have created AI by then? Well, we already have AI. That's a, we, yeah, we, I mean, depends on how you, how you define it. But it's... Yeah. Um, Trying to remember who said it to, to me. I think it was uh, Terry Sinovsky, who was a professor at Salk Institute, but I think he might have been quoting somebody else. But he said that we always overestimate how fast technology will advance in five years, and we always underestimate how fast technology will advance in 20 years. <laughs> um, because things tend to go very gradually incremental progressions and then there's a breakthrough technology which really causes a step change right. and we can predict these incremental progressions and and yeah we always hope that things go a little bit faster but we're we're terrible at predicting these these step changes right yeah. so so i've i've yeah I would hesitate a, even a guess at, at, at how this is um, going. Um, I, I sure hope we have self-driving cars by, by before, well before then, well, for instance. Maybe, I was not going to, we've got to wrap it up soon, but um, <laughs> at the risk of opening another well, you can, can keep of, going and <laughs> edit, edit bits out if you want. At the I risk mean, of opening a big can of worms, I was going to think, like, at what point, like we have ethical considerations about biology, right? We're biology and we have ethical considerations about each other. If we have electronics that mimics biology, at what point do we have to start having ethical considerations about electronics? Um, this is like X I told you I was a can of worms. <laughs> no, but this is like X Mark and if you if you watch that movie. Um, no, I haven't watched that oh, one. It's a good movie. I think you'd, you'd enjoy it. It's about this guy who creates uh, AI, like really realistic robots and does all sorts of weird stuff to them. So. Oh, right. <laughs> I've, one TV series, I think it only ran for one season in the UK, called Humans, with a Z at the end, I think, instead of an S. And they built realistic human robots. It's set in the very near future. Yeah. And... That deals with ethics if you have humanoid robots and how they get treated. Do they do they get ethics? Because yeah. uh, they were treated basically like slaves. Right. Um, you're asking the question even more generally, right? They don't have to be. It doesn't yeah. have to be a humanoid robot well, before I you start think thinking about ethics. I mean, like, we yeah. we should always think about the ethics of of, of what we do. Well, in I, I treat my I treat my uh, laptop like a slave right now, but then I don't treat my son like a slave. And part of the reason is because he learns, because he can experience emotion. So if we start putting these types of things like learning and being able to respond to emotion, or maybe even in in robots later being able to sense things that harm them, which is essentially pain, right? Yeah. Uh, at what point do we start not treating them like slaves? Yeah, it, it's it's a good question. I don't think that there's a hard answer because yeah. it's this sliding scale which makes it so hard to yeah. say 
at at what level um, do you have to start giving it or not treating it like a slave and giving it rights? Yeah. Uh, I think it's a similar question to at what age should you be allowed to vote, yeah. for instance, right? It's a sliding scale. You can't yeah. just pick one and... and, and, and it, and it could be different for every individual machine or every, yeah. Well, the way I think about it is if, if so you could have a system that could do, like, that could have general intelligence. You know, we have, um, like, machines that can beat any human being in chess. But if you can have that sort of ability generalized to everything else, um, it's still a machine, but as soon as when you have a machine that feels like it's a, like there's some subjective experience there, then I think that's where ethics should come into place. So if there's something to be like that machine to experience the world, then I think that's that's where ethics come in. Because I could imagine machines that don't have any subjective experience, yeah. but rather they're just chunking or processing information. Yeah, but it can happen even much earlier. Have you have you seen that uh, YouTube video uh, about? from Boston Dynamics they built this robot called Big Dog oh, a no. few a year or two ago um, this is the one where they kick it and they where they kick oh, it yeah, yeah. and it goes out of whack and people got so upset yeah. <laughs> there's and, lots of hilarious uh, and, YouTube clips where they've got the robot talking back after it's been kicked and things <laughs> but there's no there's no smarts in that robot other than yeah. walking right yeah, that robot yeah. is not not feeling anything but people anthropomorphize that robot so much that to into a real dog and you can't just kick that and they they get upset and maybe there needs to be ethics there already because not so much because the The big dog feels it but other people Mm. feel it and and react to it so it's even more complicated than just dealing with i can see benefits with giving machines the ability to feel pain and the ability to feel emotion because they can empathize with this and things like that um, and learn but if we start giving them these characteristics for our own benefit yeah we're stepping right into that territory yeah and it becomes becomes very tricky right Mm -hmm. um we don't necessarily need to go there Mm -hmm. so another debate is do we want to go there should should we go there um again we could try and talk about that but it will take again another hour to <laughs> i knew it was a rough, rough question there at the end but yeah. it's it, it's an interesting one but um and we can take that up but we probably need a couple of bottles of wine to solve yeah. that yeah, one. Yeah. so we need to sit down for a while <laughs> um last question do you have any reservations or fears when you look at the development of technology or even your field as well uh, in terms of, I, I suppose I can propose one context, you know, the, in, in terms of AI and it's uh, the negative consequences, whether it's, you know, the extinction of human beings, what if we develop super, like, intelligent um, systems that then just wipe us out? Yeah, because I hear, uh, sorry, just to in- interject there a bit, but I hear a lot of, you know, AI doomsdayers, but then I hear a lot of people who say, nah, it's, you know, that's crap, there's no, like, doomsday to worry about and... Is that something that concerns you, or? Yeah, you guys are good at saving the hairy questions yeah. for the end. One <laughs> last, sorry. Um, so, yes, I, I, I do think there there's something to be careful about. Um, I don't think we're it's worth like being a doomsday person about it right now, but it's something to be careful about and keep in mind again it's it's one where there is no simple answer 
No. Um, and so I, I don't know a full answer to, to that question. And so I don't I, I keep it in mind. I'm interested in it, but I, I don't really have a statement that I can, can say about it uh, um, one way or another because it sort of nails it down. And it's, it's um, yeah, it's something you, you want to watch out for um, on how that goes. You know? Yeah. It's one of those things when, when I hear, I've heard a few different uh, philosophers as, as well as AO guys that talk about it. And every time I hear, it's like if somebody was talking about nuclear bombs and, and the dangers that we may face from uh, developing even more powerful nuclear bombs, I would legitimately be concerned. But when that conversation shifts to the dangers of AI, it just makes me giggle. Like there's, for some reason, there's this cognitive dissonance where I don't appreciate the the dangers that that may be lying there. Yeah, and partly that's because a lot of AI we are currently experiencing around this. Okay, so it might beat us at, at, at Go, but it's terrible at boiling an egg, mm. for instance. Yeah. Or um, Siri most of the time gets it wrong, what I say. Mm. Um, so our currently AI is still pretty... Um, incapable of, of scaring us in, in, in a way the one the, the stuff that we experience daily but at the same time they are building killer robots for war fighting um, yeah. that will make independent decisions uh, about whether they should shoot or not you know or drones that do independent decisions those are scary if, if it goes wrong are they more scary than having a, a human at the controls I don't I don't really yeah. know right like yes it's scary to say we have killer robots and they can go wrong but it's also scary to say we have killer humans it's like our self-driving cars right uh, surely um, AI is going to get to a point where self-driving cars don't have accidents and it's just morally reprehensible to let apes drive cars anymore yeah and it, actually the biggest risk is the transition time i think when you have to have both on the road yeah um because these self-driving cars are probably pretty good at telling each other what they're going to do but mm. predicting what the human is going to do <laughs> um That's is a conundrum. Yeah. exactly yeah, yeah. okay Let's call that a day. Um, thank you, Andre, for your time. We've, uh, Thanks we'd... a lot. It's been a really interesting conversation. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah, yeah, we need to get more engineers on because, yeah, this yeah. this beats biochemists. That's, <laughs> that's just heading on, on, on our own field there. Go, go engineer. <laughs> yeah.